You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, Matt. Hey, Bob. What's going on? Not too much. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Matthew Iglesias, unless I'm mistaken. You are, um, you know, you're the author of uh, One Billion Americans. Am I right? I am. I am. And, and the people, slow, boring newsletter. And the, the, which is going to be the main uh, subject of discussion. Right. If people want to know about your book, they can uh, go locate uh, a conversation you and I had about it, or they can go to Extreme Measures and actually buy the book. Um, but Buying what we're going to... We're going to talk about today is, uh, the amazing world of Substack. You, you've, uh, made a big splash with a new newsletter called, uh, enticingly, sexily, slow boring. Yeah. Um, and you know, you may not know about this, but I actually just went paid on the Substack platform. I had for a long time had an unpaid, uh, newsletter called the non-zero newsletter. Now we have mm -hmm. a, a paid edition that will, Unlike the unpaid version, come out multiple times a week. So um, I'm eager to gain uh, insights from you about how I uh, turn this into a smashing success. I also want to talk about, you know, the question of whether Substack can save the world from tribalism. Probably and not. You, you think maybe not? No. Well, I guess we've settled that one. So let's just focus <laughs> on strategy. Let's just yeah. focus. Let's just focus on the business model. Um, how's it going for you there at Substack? Uh, very well. Um, I've got uh, a lot of subscribers, um, more than I thought I could get. Uh, yeah. I spent months wringing my hands about whether or not I should do this and uh, cajoling them into making me an offer that would minimize my downside risk and that wound up being unfavorable for me relative to just sort of taking the defaults uh, because a lot of people signed up as, as subscribers and I've been really excited about so, that. So wait, and was this like the book advance model? It sounds like maybe it wasn't what, like where they give you an advance against future earnings or what? Well, so no. So they gave me a guaranteed payment in exchange for me accepting a lower share of the subscription revenue for one year. Oh, um, you know, so that I could say to to my wife and my five year old, like we are definitely not going to end up homeless as a result of this. Uh -huh. uh, but it limited, which was great. I mean, uh, to be I see uh, the appeal of that to, to be a hundred percent right, right? Because I was nervous about the whole thing. I wanted to do it personally. I thought it would be more interesting work, but I was nervous about the business model. So they gave me a deal that eliminated my downside risk, mm -hmm. but uh, reduced my my sort of share of the financial upside for one year. Um, but it's gone really well, and you know, in year two, I'll be I'll be making more money than before. Um, and you know, some people like Andrew Sullivan, uh, Glenn Greenwald, I think are doing even better than I was. Uh, you know, it's a lot of us, um, uh, you know, old time blog people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you, you're, <laughs> you've got, you've got the blogging heads brand. Yeah. I was um, never a blog but, person myself, but no, I know but, the, I know but, the, but they, but territory. the blogs, the blogs used to be a big thing. And, yep. you know, I think, uh, that, to me is like what was substantively appealing about the Substack model is that it is more similar to that kind of work that I did uh, as a blogger, but this mm -hmm. time with um, uh, a way to make money, which was always the Achilles heel mm -hmm. of the blogosphere. So you're going to be fabulously wealthy within a couple of years. Is that fair to say? Um, I mean, I, would not say fabulously wealthy, but if this number of people keep subscribing, I'll be doing very well, better than anyone has any right to expect for writing about politics on the internet. Especially with a newsletter called Slow Boring. Oh, it's great branding. It's Max Weber. What what did, did what did Max Weber say? He said it, politics is the strong and slow boring of hard boards. Um Okay. Well now I, I have to like um Okay, you're back. Yeah. There was a video glitch, but you're back. Do we know if that's because, like, is this the time of day when all the youngsters download porn in your neighborhood or something? I, I hope that's not it. Uh, I honestly have no idea. Okay. Um, so, anyway, you're, you're back. So, um, I mean, the blog model is an interesting one. Uh, because I, I wonder how many similarities there are. One thing I haven't seen a lot of, 
is the, and and the Substack people talk about this as something you can do, but I haven't seen a lot of strong reciprocal relationships develop. You know, in the old blog days, you would link to Ezra Klein, he would link to you. Mickey Kaus would link to Josh Marshall. Josh Marshall would link to Mickey, and they helped each other get off the ground and get uh, critical mass. Mm-hmm. I have not, I've not seen as much of that. Is that happening? Uh, you know, I mean, a little bit. I mean, you know, I think I've had a, a fair amount of link back with um, Noah Smith, uh, who I like a lot, I'm hoping to try to help out uh, Will Wilkinson as he launches a, a new thing there. I mean, I agree. There's a there's less of the um, back and forth from the blog days, in part because, you know, one thing that I just have learned as a writer is that you you need your articles to be comprehensible to your audience. Um, otherwise, that doesn't, you know, work. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, asking people to go read something else first before they understand what you're saying is just challenging. You know, mm-hmm. like it's 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 hard as a as a writing thing, even if you kind of want to do it. Um, and I also do think that podcasts have become or you know video chats like this have become a really good way for people who find each other hmm. interesting hmm. to sort of make content that is dialogue in nature right. right um you know so uh dave roberts is a longtime friend of mine a great writer the, he's the also grist, started uh, the grist guy well yeah, he was a grist guy yeah he's he's on Substack now um hmm. i have not done like cross-linking with his newsletter volts but like we did an audio thing together that we both posted to our respective uh, substacks, right? Mm-hmm. So both of our subscribers could hear it. And, you know, that's sort of introduced people to each other. I mean, it's just like a literal dialogue. And, right. you know, I, I mean, well, you remember more than I, but like when you first started doing, doing blogging heads and I would come on, um, it, it was obviously technically possible to do it, but it has Bare- gotten barely, mo- but barely, it has go- I right, must it say. Was, no, no, that's what I mean. <laughs> it like, took it, a it, lot of work. It, it was really hard. And now yeah. it has gotten so much easier to record two people talking to each sure. other if you want to do that, right? So we've seen a, a kind of a scaling up of that, particularly in pure audio. And now thanks to the pandemic, everyone is getting more comfortable with these mm-hmm. video type tools. You know, so you were way ahead of the curve on that kind of thing uh, because you were pushing at the very bleeding edge of like what could actually be done. Well, I don't know if you remember technology. how we used to do it. You would have um, to synchronize QuickTime videos. Well, right? no, uh, yeah, but not only that, I mean, we, you couldn't see each other w- because you couldn't count on people having broadband. What you right. had, you, we would have a phone conversation while each of us was, yes, doing a local video recording. Then we would up those, uh, upload those to the server and, and synchronize them, but it was a, it was a whole different game. Yes, it was a mess. Whereas now, I mean, anyone, if you want to make a little recording of two people, uh, mm-hmm. Jib jabbing at each other. I mean, you have to buy the premium Zoom subscription, but it's not. It's not like beyond the technical capacity of at least like anyone who can write on the internet right. uh, can can make a video recording now. So you know, I I think that particular kind of um, chit chat dynamic that we mm-hmm. use seven blogs has moved there, and also to Twitter, where of course all we do is yell at each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed that. And I do want to eventually get around to this question of whether uh, Substack can make the world of discourse at least somewhat less vitriolic uh, mm-hmm. than than Twitter has made it. But um, but first, as far as the business stuff, well, let me ask you first, is it a frustration for you ever that your readership, although very devoted, is more limited in size? I mean, you were at Vox. You were a co-founder of Vox. Mm-hmm. And it was possible for a piece to go, you know, do very well and get, I'm sure, 100,000, 200,000 viewers. Uh, that is not going to happen with bonus content. Now, you can at any given time choose to uh, to do, a, a you know, a new, a, an issue of newsletters out in the open. And we're doing a little bit of both, although it's mainly mainly paid. But um are you finding that frustrating when you think like, hey, that was a really good piece? Um, it's, it's a shame that so few people know. Well, so, you know, I do usually one free piece per week and four uh, paid pieces. And best practices, uh, you know, according to the Substack people, and has been mm-hmm. my experience, is try to make your best thing free. 
Um, even though it, it kind of sounds weird, but it's like the paid stuff is for the super fans. Like the people who, who really want to know what, what you have to say about mm-hmm. slightly weird things. Uh, you think there's something really good. You, you make it free. And, you know, so that works well. Um, the problem is when you realize in retrospect uh, that you maybe misjudged it, mm-hmm. you know, and you put something out and you hear like a really strong, positive response from your subscribers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh man, maybe I should have made that one, the free one. Uh, but I mean, I do um, think it's important to address a broad audience of people. I mean, that's one reason uh, I'm still doing uh, the Weeds podcast for Vox, which right. has a much larger audience than my subscriber base. I've been writing a column biweekly for Bloomberg, which is interesting because um, they not only have a big audience, but it's different from the Vox audience. Mm-hmm. And like I get... Um, the people who who email me about how terrible I am from Bloomberg columns have uh-huh. like very different takes on on why I'm terrible <laughs> than my than my usual audience, uh, you know, which is good, right? I mean that that's because breadth of reach is important, yeah. but also you want to get like different kinds of people, you know, going from uh, fifteen thousand kind of center left liberals to a hundred thousand is actually less interesting than reaching an audience that's center right um, yeah. or I, someday you know hardcore communists or I, I, yeah yeah we'll 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 get there the um i think as far as bloomberg i think the bloomberg opinion stuff goes to everyone who rents one of those bloomberg terminals right, right. and and so 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 that stuff mainly is is feedback from the right i assume from, yeah finance bros who yeah who think good who to think know of, Good to know if the Substack thing doesn't work out. It's good to know a few of those people, but um, uh, it's a different it's a different clientele. Um, You know, so then then the other thing, you know, in terms of scale, right, for me, at least, is that uh, Twitter is out there. I have a very well followed Twitter account, a few hundred thousand people. I think uh, somebody I think I read in Axios, someone did like a content analysis of who Biden transition people follow on Twitter. mm -hmm. I was like the fourth most followed person. Really? Yeah. So like, that's good. Like, you know, you want to have like as a writer, you would like people to pay attention uh, to what you're saying, you know, I make no warrant that they actually care what I think, but you know, like that's good. That's really good to know. And, and so to me, you know, there's a portfolio of, uh, platforms that I participate in and that have, they all have their different pros and cons, you know, and the Substack has some really strong pros as a way to, um, really deliver something that like, the biggest fans uh, really enjoy and focus mm-hmm. on really serving that audience well in a way that is satisfying and remunerative, but also like actually enjoyable. Like I have such a um, spring in my step, like doing writing that is not focused on search engine optimization and how is this going to look in the Facebook feed and stuff like that, but is really focused in on, you know, like people who share my sensibility and interests, mm-hmm. like, like, do, do they care about this? Like, will this be good? Will this be interesting to them uh, is like a fun kind of work to do. And then, you know, there's other stuff and I'm here on your show. And, you know, I think a lot of people watch this and there's lots of great ways to communicate with people. So it's liberating uh, having a distinct audience that, you know, loves you. Um, that, you know, knows where you're coming from, you mm-hmm. know, like one yeah. of the one of the great things about blogs was the sense that, you know, the people who read your blog on Wednesday would probably read it again on Thursday and Friday and they understand where you're coming from. And you hope to attract an audience of people who um, may disagree with you about things, but respect you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then on the algorithmic internet that developed, you're writing for an audience of strangers and you have to, um, as a writer, you have to respect that. You know, that these things are going to be read by people who have no idea who you are, what other things you've written, what mm-hmm. anything is. And while I was working at Slate for, for a few years, um, this really turned, you know, when it was a big uh, change at Slate, which is a very writerly publication that at least mm-hmm. historically was known for being like kind of kind of wacky 
um, putting things that were a little bit out there. And the idea, you know, in its inception was very similar to a traditional magazine, that it was like, you know, you write an issue of Slate for Slate readers who were assumed to like get it quote unquote. But and it became a time when once all publications are writing for an audience of whoever is clicking around on Facebook, whatever pops up on a Google News feed, you have to frame things in a certain kind of way. And I find that to be very um, tedious and burdensome, you know, to write yeah. defensively against misunderstandings rather than uh, to try to like get to the point. No, you're right. So we've kind of come full circle in a way with Substack because like I was, I mean, you mentioned Slate. I was writing for Slate before you were. And the reason is because I was at the New Republic when Mike Kinsley was editor. Then he found in Slate and like at the New Republic as at kind of early Slate, not, not, I mean, more at the News Republic because that was just a physical publication. A hundred thousand people s- subscribed. They understood all your jokes. There was a huge set of assumptions that you knew were shared mm-hmm. between you and your readers. Early Slate was kind of like that, although obviously if anybody can get there from any point in the Internet, you're starting to move toward an audience that's less familiar with your stuff. But you're right. Then once, uh, both because of, of uh, the importance of search and because of the importance of social media, I think, in steering people to things, it became a totally different world where anything you – Right is likely to be misunderstood by a large number of people should you find a large audience. I think this still haunts people on Twitter. And in fact, this could become a masterful segue to cancel culture because on Twitter, you know, people often write as if everyone gets their jokes. And yet right. Twitter holds the potential to, to, to bring you to a lot of people who manifestly will not. Uh, the most recent cas- casualty is Will Wilkinson, who did a, a tweet that I think was funny. It was had a clear point. He didn't really want to lynch Mike Pence. But <laughs> as a result, you know, he lost his job at a, at a think tank uh, uh, for, you know, which I thought was a little bit of an overreaction. So anyway, Will is now spending more time on Substack and Substack has gotten a reputation recently. And I think to some extent they like this as a refuge for the canceled or cancelable. And you are sometimes held up as an example that you didn't get like, uh, you know, fired or anything, but you, well, you tell me if this is true or not. I mean, first of all, you signed the Harper's letter, which I thought was good. I mean, the main thing I didn't like about the Harper's letter is that uh, more progressives didn't sign it. Um, but uh, but then, you know, you got a little blowback about that from a Vox writer who took was offended by some of the other people who did sign it, not by you per se. Anyway, oh. the perception is that you left Vox as it was becoming as it had become more woke than you were comfortable with. Uh, and so Substack was a natural home. Now, mm-hmm. how much of that perception is valid? You know, I would put it a little bit differently. Um, and I even uh we put it differently now from just how I characterized it a few months ago. Uh, but, you know, looking at um, people sometimes get fired for, for, for bad tweets or something like that. Um, but I think much more common than that is if you are affiliated with an institution, then everything that you say on Twitter um, reflects on that institution. And if a lot of people follow you on Twitter, um, that has even more of a reflection on the institution. And if you have your name on the masthead as a, I was a co-founder of this website, that ratchets up even more. So there was just a lot of interest among management at Vox.com and at Vox Media in what was I tweeting and what was the mm-hmm. public perception of what I was tweeting. And they, for completely valid reasons, wanted me to tweet as a good corporate citizen, you know, who was just like what you would think if I'm thinking about myself in management, right? If I was managing a large enterprise, mm-hmm. would I want somebody with 500,000 Twitter followers, just like firing off a hundred times a day, different jokes, hot takes on issues he doesn't cover. Like, no, like I, I, I would want Iglesias to reel it in. Um, but like, I, I didn't want to do that. You know, it's, and a good thing about being an independent operator, a small business owner, et cetera, et cetera, is like, I could just do what I want. 
you know, uh, people can be mad or not mad. I can apologize or not apologize. And it's up to me. And it's not about woke culture or any particular line of disagreement. It's actually just about the structural uh, situation. So Megan McArdle was on Twitter today, ironically, saying that she thinks the New York Times and the Washington Post, where she works, shouldn't let their writers tweet at all. Um, and I think she has some good reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think at least in a dream world, uh, Dean Becquet would probably appreciate it if all of his staff got off Twitter. Um, but I think a lot of New York Times writers would be sad if they tried to make that rule, which is one reason why they don't do it. Um, and so I like, you know, for all the reasons that people for decades have enjoyed being their own boss, um, mm-hmm. you know, I like it too. Uh, well, because I don't know, I think my Twitter feed is good. Um, and a lot of people well, like it, you know, but like it gets people upset because I well, talk I, about it, controversial topics. Yeah. And I think you're good at being, uh, playfully trollish would you would you would you say you're you're not you're not like a hardcore troll but you're you're um i mean you you, you did a what was it a tweet recently this is totally playful but where uh, you, you 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 complained about uh the dis- disproportionate affection for hiking among tech people yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 you're kind of you're kind of joking you're raising a question there's an answer by the way do you know the whole like the whole the whole earth review you know the whole the whole origins of 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 tech libertarianism yeah, among granola yeah, types yeah. So it, it goes way yeah. back but anyway you would concede that you're good at uh i mean you're not a troll troll but you know what i mean i mean i, I yes i mean like i i i like it i i i enjoy that kind of give and take uh but i also totally get that like a media brand might not want that because as you were saying right a, a cool thing about the old new republic um, or any, you know, comparable circulation periodical in that era is that it would be, they could all be a little weird. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they had an audience, the audience paid them money. <laughs> the audience was fairly loyal. And so you were trying to be, you know, playful or eccentric or whatever, whatever. Social media is very flattening, Um you know, and, and different things get, I forget what it, what it's called, but, you know, things get completely decontextualized um, and you get screenshotted and, and passed around and around and around, you know, so we'll, I mean, I, I don't know the, the full story um, of, of uh, Will's situation up there, um, but you see it all the time, right? Like jokes to be funny sometimes get edgy they go too far you watch any stand-up routine that's good and there's always something in there where you're like i can't believe he said that right yeah um but that's if you understand the joke there's a larger danger on twitter that they don't even understand it's a joke or just that it's done maliciously yeah you know like a lot of what happens on twitter so one thing that i i remember is that i was trying to say um this is like a year ago I was trying to say that some things that are done in the name of like social justice practice that heavily focus on what words people use for things, Mm -hmm. um, like the push to use people first uh, language. Um, Wait, what is people first language? uh, So people first language is like people experiencing homelessness, Instead of homeless As opposed people. to homelessness is a social problem. Well, no, no. As opposed to calling them homeless people. Right? Oh, so you, oh, oh, oh. Because, yeah, they're, they're not fundamentally marked. Their, their character is not defined by that status. It's, right. It's not that there's a special kind of person who is homeless. Right. Right? It's that they're people and they don't have a home. So it totally makes sense. Like, I, I get it. Right. Yeah. Um, I, what, what that all means. But what I wanted to say was that, you know, these kind of things are um, stuff that uh, college educated people and people who like work in journalism, like, are just good at doing. 
right? Like I'm good at picking up new terminology and how it's supposed to be employed right. and understanding its logic and, I'm and not. assimilating myself to new norms. And um, a lot of the people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of these kinds of things, yeah. right? You know, working class people of color, uh, people with um, uh, disabilities of various kinds um, are actually not as good at this kind of stuff as relatively privileged uh, yuppies are, right? Mm. Uh, anyway, so I, I was saying something about this on, on Twitter. And then, you know, people who, it's not that like what I wrote was unclear or was misinterpreted, but people who just don't like me because of longstanding political disagreements and internet beefs would do a thing where you can take one tweet out of a multi-tweet thread and be like, look at this asshole saying that people who haven't gone to college are too stupid to understand words or mm -hmm. something, you know, and that just goes on all the time on social media, right? People mm. deliberately misrepresenting what, other well, people they have beef with are saying. Well, it's worse than that. It it, it is reinforced. There are rewards for mm -hmm. misrepresenting people. I, I mean, it, it's just kind of amazing the extent to which bad behavior is a good business model on social media. It really, really is. And it's I'm not make you know saying anything original to suggest that that has something to do with the infamous political polarization today. But it it, it it's uh so much bad faith is rewarded on on Twitter. Right. And, you know, and you are very strongly incentivized to engage with other people with um, maximal lack of generosity to mm -hmm. what they are saying. Right. To see there's no I don't fully agree with this guy, but he's making an intriguing point and it's causing me to possibly rethink some of my premises button out mm -hmm. there. Right. But there is a like quote tweet and be like, fuck this asshole you know, function, right? Like it, it, it doesn't just like incentivize a certain kind of bad engagement. It just like literally allows you to um, retweet, right? Like you can just like fully mm -hmm. echo or you can fight, but you can't really engage, you know, in the way that a, if you ask anyone, it's like, how, how do you learn about the world? How do you become smarter? Right. It's like, you have to read, um, strong writers and you have to think about what they're saying and if it seems wrong to you you have to think about well why would somebody think that like am i understanding this correctly do do i really understand what this essay is saying mm -hmm. right and social media is just antithetical to that like you get plaudits by finding an oddly phrased paragraph screenshotting it putting a very ungenerous mm. spin on it and being like, this shows that people from the other group are terrible. And then everyone from your group is like, yes, retweet. They now, are I, terrible. I should, I should say there was even before the internet an era, I recall an incentive to be disingenuous. Sometimes you could, you know, straw, there's a reason that, that straw man uh, arguments that there's a term for those and, and long has been, but it's true that, the kind of immediate feedback you get for that kind of dishonesty is much stronger now. Now, what about the possibility of uh, sub that Substack will uh, help create a better world? I heard an interview with uh, Chris Best, uh, one of the co-founders of Substack, whom uh, I once had a Zoom call with. He's a nice guy. He was being interviewed by Kara Swisher, and he was kind of making the case that uh, newsletters are just much less uh, susceptible to, I guess, the... Uh, the pathologies of uh, of a share based model, maybe that's not the way he put it. But I was wondering, I was kind of wondering how true that is, because I mean, for starters, the people who have the most immediate success with newsletters are people who built up big followings on Twitter. So whatever incentives uh, there are that 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 uh, the following of which leads one to have a big following on Twitter are, you know, they will say something about the the kinds of people who wind up with big Substack followings. But it, it's also true that um, you still are going to use social media to get your Substack stuff out, right? That's part of your your strategy with the free content you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, improvement that Substack offers is that you are not dependent on Facebook and Google in the same kind of way for hmm. that really, really, really big reach. Um, but you are definitely not detached from the Twitter universe. You can be more substantive than 
you could be on Twitter. You can produce work that is better than the work that would be literally produced on Twitter. But there's a very important uh, symbiosis, I think, between not literally every successful Substack presence, but most of them. I mean, the the main way that people um, that I think Substack works is it's a kind of uh, extension of Twitter presences for people. You know, the other thing about Substack, right? I mean, one reason that I'm I'm glad uh, that the Bloomberg audience is different from audiences I've written for in the past is that my biggest concern about writing for you know a subscriber base is that you become hostage to that exact same group of people, right? And only getting feedback from people who've already opted in to liking you, um, right? Which is different from the ways in which social media can be pathological, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, optimal, right? Um, You know, I always want to be hearing from different kinds of people uh, because you know, I mean, I just think it's like a good, it's a good habit uh, to run takes by a range of audiences and see what it is people are thinking, how they respond to. Because I'm often surprised by, you know, what different people think about different things. It's not, mm-hmm. I, I've been doing this a long time, but it's it's not 100% predictable um, what's going to be out there until you, until you see people. And that's something I saw promoting um, my book too, which was that, you know, it got some reactions that I wasn't anticipating from some directions, which, you know, was informative to me. And I wouldn't ever want to be somebody who just writes for the 9,000 or so paid subscribers that I have, because, you know, that would get just like super predictable. So let's let's get down to some basic tips for uh, Substack novices. So like, take yeah. me as an example. So I have this newsletter, non-zero newsletter. I mean, I'm a little unusual in that it has actually a fairly big non-paying subscriber base because I've been at it for a couple of years, like 19,000 people or something. I'm, 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 it, it, but, but I had gotten lazy about it. It was only coming out once a month. And what I'm going to do is there's still going to be a free version coming out at least once a month, but I'm doing like a, the paid version multiple times a week. It's still called the non-zero newsletter. I have already defined a kind of, theme broadly speaking for it the uh the phrase is the apocalypse aversion project so it covers everything from like solving global problems through global governance to attacking the impediments to constructive concerted action like polarization the psychology of tribalism blah 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 so i have a theme um i uh but I'm honestly a little, you know, I, I, I've put out one issue that's paid. I actually enjoyed the experience of, uh, mm. even though I have not nearly as many subscribers you had, I enjoyed the experience of thinking like, they, as Sally Field put it at the Academy Awards, you like me, you really like me, however many mm-hmm. or few of there they may be who fit that description right now. Um <sighs> Well, I could tell you the one the one subsequent thing I've done uh, as a promotional effort. But first, why don't you tell me what you would do? And what, well, what, and, and and I got to say, I just can't be as prolific as you. Okay, you're sure. like the world's most prolific person. Uh, but so the advice I was given uh, when I launched my site that I think worked well for me is to say um, to the world, "Hey, here's the thing, right? It's going to be a subscription newsletter that comes out." X times a week, um, but it's going to be free for the next X number of issues hmm. so that everybody gets a chance to see. So you say right now, you can you can start paying now at a discounted price, but six weeks from now, everything, you know, it's it, the, oh, wow. the, 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 well, the, well, the- I missed that boat. I missed that boat. Yeah, but you can, you can reverse yourself on it. Um, but so you give it away for free for a while so that people can start reading it. Yeah. And you say to them, if you are liking this, you should start paying now while it's at the discounted price, you know, rather than actually hitting the paywall. And to this day, I mean, I, I've gotten subscribers since that introductory period. Uh, but it's still true that about 50% um, of my of my current subscribers are people who started paying while everything was free, um, you know, just 
because they were reading it. They liked it. And, you know, each issue I'd be like, hey, you should sign up. You know, we got the discount still coming. And then eventually, you know, you put the paywall down. Um, so you do some paid, some free. You try to make your most accessible or most buzzy stuff free so that you're out there and people are talking about it. Um, and then, you know, that's how you go. I mean, then, you know, you promote anything the same way, kind of hassle people, you know, link to this. Here you go. So you- um, but the, but the, cause the, the paradox, right. Is that to get subscribers, people need to read it. But if you have to subscribe to read, you know, then, then you have a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's no equivalent exactly of newsstand sales, you know, of like, you're, you're at the airport, you got a flight going. So you pick up an issue of the economist. And then once you realize you've done that X times in your life, you think, yeah, maybe I should subscribe to this. Right. right. Um, and that's sort of the, the dynamic that you've got to get going is you need uh, a big group of people to like sometimes read your free issues and mm-hmm. be like, oh yeah, no, like these are good. I do enjoy each of them. I find myself clicking on links that go to other ones and being, man, I wish I could read that. Like, you know, I ought to go pay up. Yeah. Um, what I think you have that's good that I sort of lack um, is like a clear sense of mission and purpose because I don't think that subscribing to these newsletters um makes a ton of sense as like a purely rational uh, value calculus. Um, it's a, it's a little bit the equivalent of like, mm, like buying the merch at a, at a concert mm-hmm. for a band you like, you know, like you get the shirt, you wear the shirt, you, you enjoy it. You get some value out of it, but as a like textile acquisition proposition, <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? It's, it's just something you do because you, want to affiliate with the thing. And so having a sense that like, well, there's a mission here, right? By subscribing, I'm helping to avert the apocalypse. Like mm-hmm. that, that helps. That's, that's, that's the, good. That's a that's good idea. That's the pitch. Who doesn't like that? Right. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to avert the apocalypse? Uh, it, well, people who welcome the apocalypse, but they welcome a different kind of apocalypse. Like the Q, this is what I wrote about in the first issue. The QAnon people welcome the apocalypse. It's just that they're different. They're not, you know, their, their definition of apocalypse is everything will be made right. And, and, and that is the notion in the original Christian apocalypse, of course. It's just that in the Christian apocalypse, there is, in the meanwhile, global catastrophe. And, and so that's what the term has come to mean. And that's the one we're trying to avert. Now, Matt, huh. uh, okay, you're back. I was going to point out that you had, you had disappeared. You're still kind of freezing up intermittently, but your expression changes often enough so that there will be variety for those of us who are watching. Anyway. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, I don't know what's happening with this video. It's mainly an audio podcast audience. Good. So, Good. so, uh, we're fine. So yeah, um, it, it's true that, you know, you're, um, what you are, I mean, your unifying theme is you are a policy nerd. And, and I think it's heartening that there are as many people as there are, you know, that your audience is big, is as big as it is. Cause that, that's yeah. the unifying theme, right? Is like, you're interested, it's mainly domestic policy. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, I think during our last conversation, I gave you my sermon about how you should do more foreign policy, but uh, it went largely unheated, I think. Um, I you started do, to, to dabble a little bit back. Well, in, I noticed, back and then you got Boston. blowback from the from from the blob, and you just got to fight through that. I saw that on Twitter. The blob, you got to fight man. through that. The blob. Uh, well, I'm also a little bit waiting for something to happen on foreign policy, which um, just hadn't been the case initially. I think. I think today, right? We had um, Biden Putin call. I'm not. I'm not caught up. On oh, I missed that. I'm, I'm not fully caught up on what happened there. Um, but this seems like the first. Um, you know, I, actual foreign policy um, substance starting to occur. I don't, I don't know what your read on this is exactly, but I mean, this is my going back to the primary. Like by far, my biggest concern about uh, Joe Biden is that he is going to um, uh, implement a a worse uh, foreign policy approach than. Barack Obama, which itself was flawed, um, that that Biden is um, uh, going to try to like rebuild the unipolar moment in a totally unworkable way. 
Um, I, I don't think, I don't think they're that quite that naive. I do think they have decided that a big, uh, unifying theme for their foreign policy can be opposing authoritarianism, which is a perfectly valid thing, kind of value-wise, looks good on paper. I think as a as a practical matter, it can get you into trouble, like, for example, a long Cold War that prevents us from making uh, progress on important global issues. And that's assuming it doesn't get you into a hot war with China. Um, they're big... They have not let go of the kind of neocon emphasis on imposing American, you know, values on the world. I mean, for example, uh, Blinken has said they're sticking with the uh, sanctions in Venezuela, which, to my mind, make no sense at all. I would love to change Venezuela's form of government, but uh, history suggests that all sanctions generally do is is make human beings more miserable, and that's what's happening in, in Venezuela. So I, I think... Well, I, the, the short way of saying it is is this is not going to be a very realist administration, even in the prog- progressive realist sense that uh, I have championed and I think you have some sympathy for. Well, and especially in the China context, right, where they um, are a quite bad um, human rights actor domestically. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you want to be able to, at least like as a human being, you want to be able to articulate that mm-hmm. and not have government officials who are totally like full of shit. Uh, but there's just also an international, you know, there's like a bilateral relationship with China that right. involves both the need to cooperate on certain things and also a need to like not let them conquer Vietnam. Right. And if you Adopt a worldview that delegitimizes the regime per se, then you can't effectively draw lines like you you want to be able to say we should cooperate like this. You should really not do that or we're mm-hmm. going to be mad. Right. And if the line I mean, this was always the problem going back to to, to Bush post post 9-11 is that if you say that it's just per se illegitimate to be the people's republic of china even though i i I sympathize with that but like it doesn't it doesn't work it then means that you can't um articulate meaningful consequences for bad behavior or a framework for cooperation we are taking ourselves out of the game of having diplomacy uh because like I don't know, like they I, they shouldn't be dictators, I guess, but like they are, and you know, and like they're 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 not they're not going to stop being dictators because the American president. Well, well not only that, says they shouldn't be. It's right? worse than that to the extent that we try to delegitimize what is a fairly popular leadership. Actually, in China, we will only make it more popular. And uh, you know, it's kind of like what the resistance did for Trump. Sometimes did him did him the favor. Uh, of attacking him and that that reinforced the allegiance of his base. You got a little bit of that dynamic. I certainly think China's a tough case because the Uyghur thing is one of the most to the extent that we can make out what has been happening, it's it sounds like one of the most egregious things going on anywhere human human rights wise. I just think we have to at a minimum not make things worse and and increasing the allegiance of the Chinese people to the to the government, I think only makes the government less susceptible to, um, you know, kind of moral suasion, uh, uh, a little less concerned about their reputation in the world and so on. The other thing, just quickly, that, that kind of drives me nuts is this idea related to, to, to using authoritarianism as the unifying theme of your foreign policy. Um, and I got to say, I actually, I was a big fan of Bernie, but uh, there was a little bit of this in some of his foreign policy rhetoric anyway. The, uh, I mean, the anti-authoritarianism, what he didn't espouse, which Biden seems intent on doing, is forming some kind of league of democracies, which I just think is becomes, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 it creates a league, a de facto league of authoritarians in, a, in effect. And they, they start uh, coordinating and I just don't see any good coming from that. Well, but I also just think, right, there's this, um, I mean, this is a, a Democrat thing. Um, which is which is a torn desire to not be doing unilateralism 
like which is bad mm-hmm. um but also to be starting wars right and so they want to come up with some kind of sleight of hand whereby they can be starting wars but not doing the bad unilateralism so <laughs> that, that's an even more cynical reading i think maybe than mine which i would not have thought no, Very but like, I think it's, I mean, I remember going back to, you know, the mid aughts and being at conferences with different people and, you know, um, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter and uh, Eva Dalder and, you know, people, smart people in this mm-hmm. arena, they were really, really worried. They didn't want to articulate a multilateralism principle that would take um, humanitarian interventions off the table. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they recognize that, well, okay, if you follow the letter of international law, um, the Chinese and the Russians are never going to accept this government is doing human rights abuses as a legitimate means for a military intervention. And they didn't want to say, well, international law is important. So we're going to have to accept that, like, that's one of the consequences of following it. They wanted to create some alternate mechanism where they could say, well, it's both going to be, you know, um, a, a world of liberty under law, I think uh, was 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 her phrase, so, something like that. Um, a, a rule-based international order is what was in Obama's national security strategy, but then they don't actually want to follow the rules, right? So Republicans um, don't pretend that they care about the rules. <laughs> right. Uh, so so it's more straightforward, right? That like a Donald Trump Mike Pompeo foreign policy just straightforwardly doesn't make sense. And right. so like one day you're like best buddies with uh, the Saudis and they're dismembering journalists and the next day you're like, "Oh my god, the Iranians are so evil." Uh, Democrats like try to bring a higher order coherence to their ideas. Um, and yet, but it infects them with this desire to like conjure up new institutions. It, it, it does. I, I just think like it ultimately doesn't deliver um, well, on its on its premises. Um, the idea of um, synthesizing realism with some system of governance works, but like it just like it it has some unpleasant consequences that that i think you and i believe um you just have to learn to live with Mm -hmm. yeah no um i I mean as for the the rule-based stuff i mean a big theme in my newsletter is the importance of nurturing international law which i believe in firmly and you're right that liberals have paid lip service to it but you mentioned Marie slaughter and look i know her i like her but she's a perfect example because before the iraq war she argued that, okay, granted, invasion without uh, permission of the Security Council is illegal, but it's legitimate. Well, I mean, obviously, if you're allowed, you know, whenever something is illegal, like imagine running America like that. Okay, it's it's illegal for me to break into my neighbor's home, but I have declared it legitimate. So it's okay? No, you can't. Either you take the idea of the law seriously um, or you don't. And And in that sense... You know, the kinds of people who populate the Biden administration are, in a certain sense, I mean, I prefer them to the Trump foreign policy people, but the Biden people are probably more hypocritical on balance because they do pretend that they are sustaining a rule-based, law-based order, but they're completely uh, selective in what rules they they want to actually respect. Right. And and just like that's why I think it gets very... Um fishy when people start talking about leagues of democracy and blah, 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 blah. Because of course they're not interested in what um, South Africa or India think about foreign policy issues. What they want to do, you know, those are democracies, but they tend to put forward national security worldviews that are at odds with the American foreign policy establishment. They want to find some group of uh, yes-man countries. Sure. And then, you know, like the Czechs and Australia, but then say that somehow they're following the law. And it's, um, I think in some ways it's worse, actually, than the um, overt transactionalism of the Trump era realist. Now, Bush was worse, right? Like Bush's version of not caring about international law, where he would like make up 
these sweeping principles and make like crazy declarations that terrify everybody. Like Mm -hmm. that was terrible. And I think everybody has been an improvement on that. Um, But with Trump, um, you knew that nothing he said meant anything. You know, which I think is actually better than articulating bad principles, um, because it's very I don't think I don't think the people on Massachusetts Avenue take seriously how alarming the things they say can be to foreign leaders around the world Mm -hmm. and how much. American policy in the 21st century has really indicated that you ought to be secretly building a nuclear weapon right now because. Oh, totally. I mean, look. you know, like I, and like, I don't know, like, I mean, I know you and I are of like minds on this. I have not been writing about this much, although I was, I was just talking about it on uh, Julie Galef's podcast yesterday. And like, it is crazy to me how little self-reflection there is among the American foreign policy community about like, if you were just a patriotic government official mm-hmm. in some foreign country, like, what would you think about? the behavior of the United States of America. Um, and with Trump, I think it's like, you would think, well, we should find a way to bribe this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, like, which is not the, honestly, like as a step forward from uh, like, will we make a disarmament deal with Gaddafi and then get him murdered anyway? Like, that's mm. terrible. Like, don't, I don't know. It's very no, totally. We totally, we've totally screwed up the world's incentive structure. You, you, you let, you, 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 you let go of your nukes. We invade you. Uh, you keep them. We don't. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, see, this is all the more reason you should be writing about foreign policy more and, and yeah. speaking about it more. Um, America needs you. The uh, So what else before we go? Is there anything? Um, I mean, you know, just a quick kind of analytical question. Uh, uh, about well, leave aside the 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 Substack newsletter writers business model, the Substack business model. I mean, they seem to be doing very well. They've uh, you know they they clearly have momentum. Um, but how much is there in the way of uh, what are called positive network externalities, which has been the key to rapid growth for like social media networks? In other words, technically, that means the more people are on the network, the more valuable it is to be on the network. I think Substack is developing some of those and has more than it had when I first signed up with them like a year and a half ago or so. Um, but what is your take on it as a as a platform in that regard? I mean, this is the challenge for them, right? So Substack got started uh, with the value proposition that they had good authoring tools and good subscription management tools. And it was an easy, low-lift way for somebody to get up and running with a quality subscription newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they 100% deliver on that promise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem now is that, okay, if you are, you know, like anything, there's a little bit of a of a power law, right? Where, you know, some people are very successful and then there's a long tail of middling letters. Um, but if your newsletter is successful, right? If you're pulling in um, a substantial amount of revenue, then the things that Substack is best at become less valuable, right? Hmm. Like with the amount of, of gross revenue that I'll be bringing in, starting next fall, it would not be challenging for me to hire a Mm -hmm. developer to custom build stuff for me Mm -hmm. to get the basic functionality working. But Substack has started putting out stuff like like the Substack Reader, you know, it's like a, a right. almost like a reinvention of, of Google Reader stuff like that. Um, they have their lists and things like that. So, you know, so it's they, like you can go to one place very easily that has all the new to- newsletters you subscribe to, and the access is more efficient. And if you also subscribe to one that's at Mailchimp. Well, that newsletter is out of luck. They're not going to be there. So that's right. an example of a network externality. Right, right, exactly. And so if they can build more stuff that makes it better for readers 
to consume substacks mm-hmm. than other kinds of things, then that becomes a good reason for writers, mm-hmm. you know, to stay on it. Right. And that, that would be the, the bull case for them. Right. Right now they lead the market. They have revenue. They have investment. They can hopefully build things like this reader tool, maybe build some, so, some other kinds of stuff that make it so that uh, writers want to stay on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they are, there uh but i also don't think that they're done you know working on it but i think this is the i mean this is what you often see in the in the tech space right you have an early leader um and the problem is that what they are doing is good but it can be copied and so then it becomes a race right does the leader extend their lead fast Mm -hmm. enough to stop people from just copying them um Mm -hmm. and you know that's like business is hard. I'm a, I'm a writer. I don't (laughs) know if they could do it, but right. I mean, like that was the thing, like for the longest time I kept being a Facebook skeptic, you know, I kept thinking like, eh, this is never going to amount to anything. And obviously the thing that I was skeptical of really wouldn't have ever amounted to anything. Like Mm -hmm. the reason Facebook is a successful company is that they kept doing new stuff. Like they have a lot of smart people working there Um, and they, I I don't, I don't love the product, but they, they kept changing it. They kept iterating it, making it better, making it more compelling. And like, that's why it succeeds. Or you think about Netflix, right? Which like I was a Netflix user when it was um, DVDs in the mail. Uh, Right. And like the reason Netflix is a juggernaut today is not that like, it's not that their DVDs in the mail were, so much better than blockbusters dvds in the mail um it was that like the people they hired kept building new and better stuff well they knew they wanted to move to where they are now from a very early stage yeah and 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 blockbuster had a legacy business to protect which was doomed but the, the i mean those two examples are very different so so facebook has you know, extreme network externality so i'm kind of surprised you were you were down on it i mean once you know, once a, a critical mass of people are there, it's just the place to be, right? For that kind of social media experience. That's where your friends are. And so, and it's all the more valuable because that's where your friends are. And that's where your potential friends are. Um, Netflix at the other extreme, uh, has very little in the way of network externalities. Substack is somewhere in between. I, I think, you know, the, uh, you're right. Re- recent innovations they've done, um, like the reader, increase the network externalities. Um, I also think it would probably help if they had algorithms that, I don't know, either made it easier for readers who, who say, like, if they like my newsletter, make it made it easier for them to find other newsletters. Because that, that then creates network externalities from the point of view of the readers, kind of. Um but also made it easier for newsletter proprietors to find newsletters they have they could have a naturally synergistic relationship with, if that makes sense. I mean, we talked about how you don't see the reciprocal linkage the way you did in the days of blogs. But um, I, I think they're thinking about all this stuff. They, they've been moving kind of methodically, um, but they have continued to progress. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the big question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just like a little bit known unknown and unknowable you know people want to media people love to talk about things that are relevant to the media so there have been these think pieces in new yorker columbia journalism review elsewhere and you know is substack the future um and you know i don't know right as a as a substack author i think i'm expected to have a strong opinion on this obviously if the company does not roll out any new products or any new features over the next 18 months, like they are not going to be the future. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I think it's obvious that they're aware of that fact, right? It's just a question of like, can they execute on uh, creating more synergy, M- making it so that you want to be a writer on a platform with other popular writers. Right. Um, because, You know, otherwise, what you have is an economy of scale thing, which is that um, you have, you know, a centralized development team Mm -hmm. sort of making the authoring tools. So that's fine. But that's Mm -hmm. that's minimal. Right. That doesn't keep growing your advantage unless you can make some 
really next level tools mm-hmm. or something. Um, cause there's lots of good CMSs out there. There's lots of ways to write. I, I mean, there are also subtler network externalities. Like now there's enough writers on Substack that every pretty, you know, most people who would subscribe to any newsletter are familiar with the interface. They're familiar mm-hmm. with the payment interface. Substack probably has their credit card information. That saves time. Those are little things, but you know, they're, they're, they're not nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's it. You know, it's a it's it's a start. It's a it's a promising company. Um, I just think it's a you know a challenging road, but that's that's a, how business is. It's a jungle out there. So I, I would say we've covered the waterfront. Um, well, actually, we haven't, but we have been talking for an hour, and that's about what we do here. Um, so uh, we should say first of all, again, your book is one billion Americans. Case for thinking bigger. Is it bigger mm-hmm. or big? It's bigger. Bigger. Uh, and, uh, your newsletter is slow, boring. It's great. I read it. My newsletter is non-zero, one word. Uh, and, um, people should, uh, read everything we do and shower us, uh, with money. Thank you. I think. Yes. I agree. So thanks, Matt. And, uh, good luck with all. We'll, we'll, we'll check in with you down the road. Meanwhile, we do expect to see more foreign policy content from you. Nice. Okay. See you around.